Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Intermission podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and in this show we discuss cars and films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. In this episode I'm joined by Misha Cherudin, who many of you will know from his YouTube exploits, from all sorts of Nürburgring content. Misha, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Hi there. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to talk cars, basically. The only thing that I do on, on a daily basis. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly what we're here for. So, what is your favorite movie or TV car of all time? <laughs> well, I guess just like asking every car guy what is his favorite car of all time, or in my case, what I get thrown at me quite often, what is the best car for the Nürburgring? Uh, I always say, you know, it's kind of similar if you would ask uh, a parent of multiple children, who is your favorite child? It's kind of <laughs> impossible to answer, I think. But um, I think back in the days, like I, I loved the Gone in 60 Seconds movie. Um, that was definitely uh, one of the most iconic ones. Of course, we grew up with the Fast and the Furious franchise. Only the first two, uh, well, after the Tokyo Drift and went downhill. Like when I was really, really young, I would say Knight Rider, the series. That was, of course, yep. very iconic. And as of recent, last year, uh, the Ford versus Ferrari, that was absolutely marvelous for me. And to on a similar subject, I would say um, Rush, especially for me as someone who is associated with Nürburgring quite strongly, that's definitely a very good movie for me. That's a good shout. I don't think Rush is one that we've featured yet on the podcast, so I think that's definitely one for a future episode, but all very, very good shouts. Where did your interest in cars start originally? It's hard to say. I, I think it's hard to pinpoint like that exact moment. Uh, I mean, th there were multiple things. So one of the earliest things that I can remember is because uh, I was born and grew up the first 11 years of my life in Russia. So um, back then, everyone was just like working on their own cars. So my dad would like spend hours working and modifying himself, his Lada. Um, and I would just like hang around and uh, help him find the the socket number 10, you know, like the casual things. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then also like growing up with computer games, such as the, the very first Need for Speed, of course. Um, then uh, I remember when I was... I think five years old, I got for Christmas uh, a petrol station from Lego. And because back at the time, like after the fall of Soviet Union, like there was like a massive scarcity of, of gas, of petrol. So there would be like massive traffic jams for um for in line to get petrol and i was playing that with my lego gas station with my model cars i would make a traffic jam throughout the whole living room and that was like a, it's an anecdote that my mom tells everyone but yeah i guess it's just like multiple things uh, that led to where i am today i cannot think of like one single thing that i said like oh my god i want to yeah, like in the future do something with cars because actually a funny thing is that at the beginning I was more into like a two-wheeled side of out uh, like oh, motion yeah. yeah yeah I started doing drag racing with scooters like 12 or yeah 12 years ago by now and uh, I was not that much into cars only when I was 21 I bought my first car so it was like not really uh, something that I aspired to be. Uh, and the, the funny thing is when I was, when I was like getting into this, when I was like around 18, 19, 20 years old, I was like, oh yeah, I would love to work with cars. But for some reason I had this vague misunderstanding of like, okay, if I want to work with cars, I need to have some engineering background. And back then I was studying business and management and I totally didn't realize, hey, you can do also other things in the automotive industry. It's not only about engineering cars. So, and here I am today. I was looking through your old YouTube videos when I was doing some prep for this, and I've noticed if you go back right to the very start, there's a lot of, are they scooter videos that you did? Yeah. So back in the days, I had uh, a very heavily modified scooter, which I participated eventually with the National Drag Racing Championship with. Um, but uh, apart from that, I also ended up uh, founding a scooter club in Netherlands, which was the biggest scooter club of the whole Netherlands and uh, we did lots of cool stuff like some guerrilla marketing campaigns with energy drink uh, manufacturers um, we made some cool appearances at like the national TV and radio shows we would be with 500 people it uh, was all kinds of interesting wow. things and that was my first 
um, touch with, I would say, social media and branding and uh, without actually realizing that I was making, well, a name or a business because I was just like having having fun. And uh, at some point it clicked to me like, hold on, it's actually, you can make a living out of it because you're good at promoting stuff. And uh, yeah, that's uh, when the turning point came. I've got to ask, before we go any further down the sort of YouTube road or anything like that, how do you modify a scooter for drag racing? <laughs> well, basically just, just like a car. You, you modify like the, the engine. In that case, it would be the cylinder. It's just like one cylinder. You put a bigger carburetor. You uh, modify a transmission. You do apply weight reduction. So people go crazy. They build yeah. other completely custom-made uh, aluminum frames uh, with carbon fiber body parts. And uh, eventually, Blimey. if like the... The whichever scooter you would buy, like an average scooter you can buy uh, in the shop, like just for for daily commute, would be around four horsepower or three horsepower or something, and around hundred plus kilograms, you would end up with a machine around fifty kilograms and around twenty or even nowadays close to thirty horsepower, and that power to weight ratio is well just as extreme extreme as nowadays hypercars. So yeah. <laughs> so what's it like then? We, I'm guessing your full leathers, obviously your helmet on the drag strip. What sort of times does a drag scooter make over what eighth a mile, quarter mile? <laughs> yeah, back. Uh, well, I, I need to check. I mean, back in the days, the the distance was 150 meters, so that's uh, slightly less than than half a mile. Uh, no, 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 slightly, slightly less than one eighth of a mile. The fast things would be running around five seconds and uh, the, the top speed of around 160 kilometers an hour so wow yeah that, that that's like pretty ridiculous um, again when you compare and some people would even like put nos on it uh, and it's just yeah <laughs> you've, you've got to be clinging onto the handlebars for dear life at that speed haven't you yeah correct that's uh it's pretty extreme uh but uh <laughs> just like with every motorsport accidents were very 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 uncommon i would say yeah um because it's like in a very controlled environment and uh people would progress from uh like for, from a very stock uh machine to something yeah they would, they would acquire skills and not get on something uh, something too fast for for themselves to handle. Wow! You described yourself recently on, I think it was on either on Facebook or on Instagram, as a Russian with a Dutch driving license in Germany in a car with is it uh, Croatian plates on it? <laughs> yes. What brought you to the Nurburgring, and why are, are you such a, a kind of a cosmopolitan figure? Have you just lived in a lot of places and done a lot of things that got you eventually to the Nurburgring? Um, yeah, I guess so. The Nurburgring story is actually quite a funny one because, like I said, I was born in Russia, and then my parents got divorced. My mom remarried a Dutch guy, and I eventually ended up moving with her to the Netherlands. And so from the age of eleven, I kind of grew up in the Netherlands until I was, well, let's say like. Uh, six years ago. So I was living about one and a half hour away from the Nürburgring and uh, once I got into cars and I started building my first time attack car and I ended up having one of the world's most powerful Subaru Impreza's back in the days um, with 700 horsepower, 864 newton meters of torque and I was like racing time attack with it and with the Nürburgring being the, the holy ground, the mecca of motorsport of every like a bucket list item of every petrol head, for me it never occurred like hey I really should go there uh, even though it was for me not not such a like uh, not such a um, challenge to go there because it was just like one hour, one and a half hour drive. And eventually I just got a job offer from a company that was setting up and they needed someone to do marketing part of things. And I'm like, well, okay, I'm up for a challenge. I went there and well, the rest is kind of history. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And was that your first taste of marketing or was it something that you'd done previously to that? Um, no, this is something I would say I, I, I was doing previously to that as well. Before that, I was working uh, with a friend of mine who had a tuning uh, shop back in Russia and he built one of 
of the world's only Nissan Juke R's. So put a Nissan uh-huh. GTR engine in the, in, the, in the Nissan Juke and do some crazy stuff with it. And we ended up racing against Ken Block in the Gymkhana Championship in Madrid and um, yeah, doing all kinds of crazy car stuff around the world, which was like you know, one of the best times I had back in the days. Um, and that was probably like one of my first, I would say, really professional uh, experiences with marketing where I would be like really had a title as a marketeer and do actually something. Whereas before that, I was still doing things with cars and I would market them, but without having the business thought behind it. I would be just doing it because I like it and I like telling about stuff. And sometimes sometimes it was also like, you know, kind of a social bragging about stuff, like look at me with the fastest car. And But at the end of the day, this is what marketing is about, telling people about a certain thing in the best possible light that, that you can do. Yeah, in the last couple of years, I made it an actual job, I would say. Did you ever take the Subaru to the Nürburgring? <laughs> no, I ended up uh, selling it in parts, unfortunately, because uh, during, uh, I think it was 2015 uh, European Time Attack Championship, I borrowed it to a friend of mine, actually, and he blew up the engine. And after that, I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Uh. And I just sold it in parts. <laughs> <laughs> Why aren't there more Subarus at the Nürburgring? They seem to be, aside from a few specialists in a few of the VLN entries, there seem to be very few Subarus that ever make it to the Nürburgring. There are multiple reasons. I mean, I think Subaru is a brand that you buy with your heart and not with your head. Just like, for example, the same goes for McLaren because it requires a lot of um, maintenance. You need to put a lot of money into it to make it fast. Uh, the earlier chassis, which are which are accessible, are made out of tin foil, so you really need to do lots of reinforcement to that to avoid uh, body roll, etc. And the engines are far from being reliable uh, without having lots of lots of modifications done to them to make them reliable, which costs a lot of money. All-wheel drive of Subaru is, of course, great, but all-wheel drive is not really beneficial to have it on the track um, unless you drive in the wet, of course, because it brings a lot of weight, um, understeer, etc. Um, so it's not, not the best layout, I would say. It's, it's a great car to drive. It's a very peculiar car to drive. Um, but also when you talk about VLN entries, the only VLN entry is actually Subaru team themselves. It's a factory team who come out there and do a great job, but that's not, uh, not run by enthusiasts, not from someone who just uh, finds, has a barn find old car and he, he decides to convert it to a race car because that would require lots more uh, modifications done to it. So yeah, there, there, there are lots of downsides, um, which makes it quite a weird car to, it's it just not a smart choice to go for a Subaru. But uh, uh, if you go for it, uh, you would you would stand out and you would enjoy a lot. So there came a point, again, looking at your YouTube channel, where you obviously started making videos around the Nürburgring regularly. My God, you've done a lot of videos over the last sort of three or four years. Mm -hmm. Was that driven by a desire to make films or was that driven as a marketing tool for something else and you saw value in the platform? I think it was kind of both. I did, like, uh, I started making daily YouTube videos, like daily vlogs back in 2016 and I only published them uh, at the end of 2016, after, after which I actually started doing again daily vlogs with a new company that I uh, co-founded and started working with, which was Apex. Um, so, of course, a lot of it was driven by uh, marketing. Like a big part of it was the idea to tell people about the hidden things, the, the hidden gems of the Nürburgring itself. So partially it was, yes, marketing, uh, but the big part of it was actually my uh, desire to tell people about, again, the, the, the hidden gems of the Nürburgring, regardless of the companies that I was working for. Um, and even nowadays, uh, actually, I would say every single Nürburgring piece of content you would see it has nothing to do with uh, marketing in terms of business perspective. I do not get like any uh, payment from companies, whether it's Monty Racing or Rentec or Atomic. It's just something I find cool uh, to tell people about um, because this is type of content that it's either inaccessible or nobody would care ma- uh, talking about. Um, because in the car world, unfortunately, unless you have like a flame spitting exhaust and 2000 horsepower and you do some donuts and burnouts, 
motorsports, well, it's a very small community around motorsports that people care about motorsports. That's why people don't care making content about motorsports in general. I, I have to ask you something which I, you're probably going to groan at, but I have to ask because... I've been circling around the Nürburgring in one sense or another for a long, long time. And I remember there was a point where this guy started popping up in my YouTube feed and people started mentioning him on forums. I'm guessing you can probably imagine who I'm talking about at this point. Um, there could be a name, yeah. <laughs> with the hat and with the accent and... Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was the the idea behind Boosted Boris? And, and for any of our listeners who haven't seen some of your older content, how would you describe Boosted Boris? <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a funny story. I mean, um, Boosted Boris was actually born in Sweden for a funny reason, because we went to a Swedish car show back at the time with with the Duke R. Uh, we were invited by a friend of mine who who had a YouTube channel back in the day, and they were just making some sort of reports of local car shows, and their host was Captain Redbeard. And Captain Redbeard was a big guy with a massive red beard and just like uh, hassling people as you would um as you would expect from an average swedish redneck so to say you know and on that uh, on that weekend it was captain redbeard's birthday and he said screw you guys i'm not gonna drive 700 kilometers to some stupid car show to make a stupid video so i'm gonna stay home and when I arrived there, they said, well, Misha, you're going to be our host. I'm like, well, okay, cool. Never done this before, but I like d doing stupid stuff. And But uh, we need to be just as, as half as awesome, uh, awesome as uh, Captain Redbeard. <laughs> so we came up with this character idea of Boosted Boris. We had lots of other like alternative names for it, but uh, I had this uh, Russian hat with me and the sunglasses. So we ended up doing that. And... Uh, we had a lot of positive feedback, which you would get on the first release anyway from your family and friends who support th these kind of things. Ended up doing a couple of videos. And then eventually I decided, well, you know what? Let's take it to the next level. Let's do really consistent content creation and do some more crazy stuff. And just be... I would say Boosted Boris, you can describe him as being Borat for in, the, in the car scene. You know, he, <laughs> yes. just, he just doesn't care about anything. He just like, he says what he thinks the most sexist and offensive <laughs> things that people would laugh about. Um, but yeah, it, it, sometimes it's also offensive for people. And in 2017, I made the decision of like going, like promoting more my personal brand. Uh, so like uh, making videos from my point of view as like using my own name and that boosted Boris, uh, which is not as well received by the masses because they are like, of course, serious. But from business perspective, it's of course a lot more interesting, I would say, because the big brands are not willing to work with uh, with me because it's not as like offensive in the first place again uh, a very funny story because now nowadays i'm working uh, in the marketing department of remats um and but my very first encounter with the brand uh, i made a boost and boris video back in 2018 yeah so the, by now it's like almost uh, yeah, yeah it's two years ago and published it and uh, well they didn't they were not like particularly happy words so to say the marketing department themselves my my colleague Martha she absolutely hated that video because it was like all the filled with uh, sexist jokes and offensive and uh, Mate Remetz the, the founder and CEO of the company he went along with it he was like making fun and jokes with it as well and you know, for, from one perspective, you can say that brings the brand down because it shows that it's not a hypercar manufacturer, but like they also like to joke. But yeah, there are multiple perspectives you can look from it at it. But um, eventually it uh, got me a job here. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. So when you put away Boris and you decided to be you, how did you approach YouTube? What was the idea for a format? What was your inspiration in terms of how you? talk to the audience and how you find content and the kind of things that you do yeah it's a 
it's interesting. So um, back in 2015, like in the winter, because back at the time I was uh, traveling for winter uh, back to Russia because I was having a girlfriend there and Evergreen is closing over winter from November till March. So I just would would spend my time off in, uh, well, with, with uh, back in time with my girlfriend and just like sitting on the couch sometimes and just like... Um, yeah, getting rest and recharging my battery, so to say, after having a very uh, uh, busy season over the Nürburgring. So, um, back at the time, I was uh, I found this guy called Casey Neistat, who was very big at the time and still nowadays is. Um, and I was like, holy shit, you can actually make, uh, from simple things in life, they're interesting. Um, you can make interesting content just by including simple stuff. And that was like a very big inspiration for me to uh, to make daily content, to show actually very special things, such as the Nürburgring, such as the supercars and hypercars that would visit them, but from a very, very light light perspective, I would say, without being too serious, pretending as if it's like very normal, because... Um, a lot of content, uh, of course, uh, this is the way to make audience, but sometimes it's way too over-exaggerated when people start yelling, screaming, like, oh my God, it has 1,000 horsepower. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Did you see the spec? It's 20,000 euro for this paint, people. 20,000 euros. Many of you don't make this much money. And of, of course, this is the way to attract a larger audience, but... Uh, on the other hand, for many people, this is also like a very annoying form of content. This is not what people want to see. Um, and of course, there, there needs to be some sort of humor and some sort of uh, extravaganza, maybe like uh, in the content uh, to appeal, to stand out from everybody else. But sometimes like being normal and down to earth, this is what makes you stand out from everybody else. And I think this is uh, what has been... Um, I would say success of my content um, because like for example two years ago I tried to experiment with hiring a video guy an editor to take my videos to the next level to have music in them to have like some fancy transitions and uh, these videos would not get watched um, as much as my very simple ones uh, because people said this is not you this is not why, what we are here for uh, this is something for a different type of channel. And I'm like, well, this is what I've gotten myself into now. And um, I guess this is what I should continue doing. So like bringing this very simple content. And from my own experience, I know that simple things aren't always as simple to make as they appear from the outside. How did you find that transition? Did Was there a bit of a learning curve while you were people were getting used to it and while you were, I guess the way that you talk to the camera and the way that it seems to be very casual, it seems to be very almost like your phone's just in your pocket and you're like, oh, I'll just do a quick bit of this and it's really easy and everyone around you is knows what you're doing. They're, they're all involved as well. So was that quite an easy thing to, to move into for you or was there a bit of a learning curve while you kind of understood what that format actually was? Uh, of course, with everything, it's a learning curve. If I would like like watch the videos back that I made two, three years ago, I would just cringe myself out of the room. Um, of, of course, it's a curve of trial and error, and um, just by watching it and comparing it to other content creators, what they do, and uh, learning new techniques, new editing te techniques uh, to make videos more watchable. And like you said, simple things are the most difficult things to make because the simplicity is key to success. But how do you find that uh, there's a very draw line between simple content, which is successful, and being something that is just trashy because there is absolutely zero story behind it? I, I've spoken, for example, to many like marketeers from big brands like the, the energy drink brands and uh, similar who are known for making yeah crazy viral content and when you ask them like so guys what is what's the success behind a successful video and many of them who if they are going to be honest they're going to answer we don't know we just make something we hope for the best and sometimes we just don't understand why why something 
So stupid, something which is which was not intended to be viral becomes viral, and then we're being accredited for making the best viral piece. And we're like, oh yeah, yeah, sure, that was the intention. That's what we wanted to achieve. <laughs> but yeah, so in reality, it's it's almost like sort of gambling. They're just making this stuff and hoping some of it sticks to people. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, I mean, of course, you would have. Uh, some things w- would have, uh, so to say, you you kind of gonna know that they are special because they're unique. Uh, so, f- for example, like one of my best videos so far last year was uh, taking my grandmother out on a Nürburgring. She's 80 years old. You drive 300 kilometers an hour on a racetrack. That's no one who's gonna do it, and it's a fun content for people who would uh like who who would love it who love cars but also people who would love who have absolutely nothing to do with cars this was kind of okay assumable to be successful another video which was also very done positively is like when i made explanation of how much racing in the nevercreen costs yes this is something i did not uh i did not expect to have this many good views but i think the editing of that video was key and then of course also the the factor that you talk about price now another example of my uh, of a good friend of mine uh tim uh, as you that you know as shmi 150 his uh example would be uh he said that he absolutely did not understand why uh one of his video did not perform well at all and that was him driving the roof yellow bird together with alloy roof the the final well yeah the, the the current ceo of the company uh which is for many people the roof yellow bird is just like one of the gems one of the most iconic cars in the world which has is absolutely priceless and uh, in comparison to any other supercar video on this channel uh it performed like what 10 percent maybe of, of his average and that's something that you don't understand. You might think that you have the, the perfect formula which can apply to one video, but then you have the same components like being exclusive and special to another video and then nobody cares about. It's weird. It's, uh, yeah, you don't have a golden recipe for the, the perfect <laughs> stuff. You just have to hope and do the best. If you had a golden recipe, I, th- I suspect you would be a very, very rich man. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And of course, a lot of people... Uh, make their living out of it. Well, less less than say a lot of people, but you would see like quite often like uh, those Facebook or Instagram advertisements of people who uh, like motivational speakers and you name it, uh, who offer you the the best recipe for success. And people who look for self help, they might find uh, like truth in there, and they they would they might find motivation to it. And at the end of the day, I think you just need to have something to believe in, and stick to it. And um, it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or your uh, diploma, which like brought you all the skills, or maybe your connections. Just stick to something and. Um, yeah, believe in something, and uh, I, I, uh, at some point it will get you somewhere. That's a very, very good philosophy to live by. Earlier you were saying about the story of a video. Is that where you really start with a video, when you have an idea? Or do you just have days where you're just like, let's just see what's happening? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's kind of both. Um, like for, for certain videos, of course, I do have an idea. I uh, try to write a script even and like to, 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 to make something really specific. For example, like the video that, that I talked to earlier about, about like the costs of racing the Nürburgring. There I really need to, okay, I, beforehand I sum up all the things on paper and uh, think of uh, what I'm going to say, how I'm going to say, how I'm going to edit it. And eventually it, of course, uh, becomes a better video because it has a higher production value. Um, but other videos, I just, um, because I'm blessed by living at the Nürburgring, I, most of the time I'm just start my day off and I film whatever I see. And sometimes something very special happens and comes on my path and that gets very well received. And that video would take me, well, probably throughout the whole day in total, I would film for 30 minutes. I will edit it to be something around between 10 and 15 minutes over the course of I would say one hour maybe total combined with distraction of looking at other things while I'm editing videos. So in total, it's a, like a two hour working uh, process. Um, and that might 
be just as successful or more successful than something I would put two days of work in. So it's uh, like I said, it's a, it's a gamble. You cannot, um, yeah, it, it can be very good. It can be very bad in both cases. And uh, it's hard to say what would be the successful way. Two hours for a vlog might sound like a lot. It's kind of two hours in and 10 minutes of content out. But if you think about, I guess, two hours pretty much every day day in day out on top of the other jobs that you do because i think it's important to say that it's not just youtube in your life you well i've lost track of how many jobs you seem to have at the moment but Mm -hmm. it's a big commitment and i think you've been very honest in the past about the toll that the youtube stuff and your other work and other presenting gigs has has had particularly on on your racing and I think that a lot of viewers sort of really responded to just being so honest about how difficult it is to keep all of this stuff up yeah no absolutely it's uh, I mean it's a give and take thing it's like it has given me lots of opportunities uh, in life that otherwise wouldn't be possible but it has also taken a lot of things uh, from me like my uh, my private life has suffered from it. My personal, like, uh, last year was, like, very exhausting. So, like, I had, like, a very big crash during the race that uh, lots of, again, like you said, my audience respected me, but also lots of local teams. They said, I'm the first person in 10 or 25 years that they have met in the motorsports that would not blame the brakes or the sun shining too bright and them, like, being resulting in crashing. No, it's just like me saying, like, I fucked up, I uh, I was overexhausted, I zoned out, and I totally, like, missed the breaking point. I just, like, completely was just, like, over-fatigued. And it's just, like, my personal mistake. There was nothing about, like, car condition or me thinking or assuming something. It was just, like, a big... Uh, well, big error from my side, which was caused by all the overexhaustion because of all the projects that I was doing back at the time. So, yeah, it is indeed, uh, it's a give and take situation. I have to actually refer to another one of your, your races as well, which was a crash absolutely not of your fault, but I found it quite interesting the way you reacted to it. And that was, you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, I think it was a VLN5 mm-hmm. when you got sideswiped by an M6 GT3. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere around Whipperman, I think it was. Uh, no, it was uh, Galenkopf. So it was just ah, the last corner before the straight on, and yeah. my very last lap. So it was very yeah. <laughs> sad. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to think when I was watching that because you cut between... and We'll put a link in the show notes for so that people can, can watch this. The video started with almost a sort of an autopsy of the car and, and the damage that it had caused and footage you sort of cut in of what had happened. But I imagine even in practice... When you're on track, when you're racing, you know, the blood's pumping, your adrenaline's going, and you're just completely focused on what you're doing. And I think that was all you had to sort of, I think you had to kick the door open because that had deformed in the crash as well. Yeah. And you started vlogging as though there was this little kind of bit of your brain that never, ever switches off from creating content. And even, I think you standing behind the barrier, foraging for berries and, and stuff. And is that just how innate it is in your personality now? You're just so, you're always on the lookout for content. You're always thinking about the camera and the audience and what you can say. Is it just always there in your head? I think so, yes. I think this is uh, definitely I see like possibilities to create content. I see chances and I would rather grab them. And I know that this is something that people, again, would want to see. What what happens in the, in the middle of disaster? Like, how, how that does it... Uh, how does it go? And uh, I also try to find always, like, a positive light when something like, bad like that happens. Uh, so... Uh, the answer is definitely yes. Like my, my brain is always thinking like, okay, what can I do with what happens from that particular situation? And um, a bit going away from like the, the racing part, I think the biggest uh, challenge I would say that I have right now with uh, working at Remats, like the world leader hypercar manufacturer, is like, oh my God, this is such a good content. And then either I am not allowed to do it or we are as a company are not allowed or cannot talk about it yet because it can have so many interpretations by the community or by like the the car industry in general and I'm sitting there like guys we need to do it and this is so great <laughs> and uh, it has its downsides as well <laughs> I can imagine and particularly with a company like Rimats who have got what work with Porsche investment from Porsche even agreements with Hyundai and lots of other very big very corporate 
companies, shall we say, but do you think that companies like Rimats and even bigger companies like that can do more with YouTube? They can do more with the platform? The answer to that is absolutely yes. Uh, they can definitely do more, and I start seeing companies doing more uh, with them. Uh, so, for example, uh, when I would uh, talk about Rimats in general, one of my projects within the company is the show called Mondays with Mate, where uh, we, uh, like, well, well, Mate Rimats, the founder and CEO of the company, talks on YouTube. We try to make it every week, but sometimes his schedule or our schedule will not allow us to. So we aim for three episodes per month. He would talk about anything and uh, answer the, the audience and the fans questions. And I don't think there's like any car manufacturer in the world uh, where its CEO would talk about, well, uh, straight to the camera every single week pretty much about the questions that his audience would ask. But I, I see similar projects coming, like, uh, coming into existence. For example, Porsche has started a series called Ask Porsche, uh, where they would again answer the questions and um, you know like also uh, answer critical questions from the audience. Like one of their recent episodes was about Porsche Taycan and everyone nowadays bashing EVs not being that sustainable because of the battery lithium production in Africa, etc. And they would give their actually honest uh, like honest thoughts and opinion, not like trying to swipe it under the rug or something. The best example nowadays from car industry in general is, of course, Elon Musk, but he doesn't do YouTube. But uh, like that, that would be definitely be interesting, but uh, he does very well on Twitter. Um, so he knows how to influence the community and how to spread the news. Um, but in general, yes, uh, unfortunately, the big companies in general, not only car manufacturers, are, of course, led by uh, people who have been in office for decades and they've been doing stuff the old way and they don't even know the use of the current technology. And sometimes the latest technology is being perceived as immature or that you will not reach your target audience with. But when we look by now, uh, YouTube has been... Uh, around for over a decade. So a lot of people, uh, actual target audience, uh, have grown up with YouTube uh, or even Instagram for that matter. And to reach their actual buyers, um, the car companies start seeing that they need to be active on those platforms as well. But a lot of them are still afraid that they would lose their seriousness, so to say, that they need to be, uh, yeah, still serious and boring for that matter um but at least they start like working with with influencers or uh, like they invite also youtubers and not only car journalists in general and i think that's a good thing and also when you if you look at nowadays formats like even traditional format like top gear it it is uh, still a big TV show, but they also focus a lot on making exclusive content for YouTube alone, which which is great. So I think the the car industry is shifting in the in the in the very positive direction. And speaking of of businesses that have grown up recently, I have been following the story of Apex pretty much exclusively on your channel over. I was looking actually, is it three four years now? Apex has been sort of in development. Yeah, it's. Uh, we are now entering our fourth year. Uh, we started in, uh, I would say, February January of uh, two thousand seventeen, mm. and now twenty twenty is our. Fourth year, yeah. Wow. And how much of the the interest in Apex really comes from the YouTube audience? And I guess, I mean, there's a lot of content that goes up on Instagram as well. I mean, I'm trying to think of other uh, other similar businesses in the area who do any sort of online marketing, especially to that same extent. Yeah, of course. Um, the whole company, of course, was founded on the idea of uh, social media, of using social media as our sole platform for advertising, I would say, to be unique to uh, because the services that Apex offers is based on uh, on customer is customer service based, and to attract customer services, you need to show how actually how friendly. Well, friendliness is the key. 
So you have to show that uh, the real sides of things, and um, you need to be transparent, as transparent as possible. Um, and because of that, um, the beginning, like the first two years, you, the first year, I would say like 100% of our customers came because of YouTube. Now, our very first bookings were when I on my YouTube channel announced that, hey, that we are starting this this company and we would have our first customers would be straight directly from, from my YouTube channel who would make, uh, like I would say, even leap of faith by booking something, a non-existing product at the time, because we said we were going to do this and that, but we didn't have anything <laughs> physically to offer, but people would actually spend their money with us. And um, yeah, eventually we delivered as uh, nowadays you, you would see. Uh, but as the time progressed, of course, we needed to attract new audience. Um, and uh, as of last year, we started investing in other, um, so to say, more traditional ways of advertising, such as uh, like you know, all the SEOs, um, SEOs, etc. So like Google search engine optimization. And that would, of course, bring us also uh, lots of customers that would otherwise not have found about us because you try to reach different groups. And of course, there's also lots of other examples that have nothing to do with social media. And uh, that would bring us again, uh, new businesses, because we would approach people there. But the foundation of the company lies in the, indeed on YouTube. And if in the beginning, it was like 100% of our customers would come from that. And uh, nowadays, it would, it's probably still uh, more than 50% comes uh, from YouTube. It's either old customers or, or new customers who hear from us uh, because of the social media. So that number is indeed quite big. And uh, like you said, other companies uh, are not doing this much with it. Um, and sometimes uh, it, it ends up in, in, in frustration from other people. Like they would complain to the to the Nürburgring, for example, uh, saying like, hey, why is Apex making videos? It's a commercial activity. Why cannot we do it? Um, uh, instead of like, no, 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 they didn't even say like, why cannot we do it? Why don't you punish Apex? And then they say, well, why should we? You can just go and do it yourself. You know, there's, but they don't have either the resources or they don't want to spend uh, time. So, Eventually, it ends up in such a yeah small bitching community. People saying like, why why are they allowed to do it? Well, everyone is allowed to do it. Just get up your ass and uh, and do something instead of uh, spending your time and energy complaining. Yeah, and go and so, do it. The other interesting thing I've noticed with Apex is that as your vlogs have gone on, in particular you've always highlighted who the other people are that you work with and whether it's the taxi drivers or the the mechanics or, or any of the staff yourself, Robert, everybody. Has that led to what seems like a growth in the number of YouTube channels that seem to have come out of Apex? It seems like every that you've really built a community of, of creators there as well as being a hotel and being a taxi company and everything else. Um, I don't know if, it's, if it has to do with, uh, with the fact that, yeah, that, that I may like emphasized on people's uh, like importance or existence that they ended up making their own uh, channels. I mean, for me, whenever I come across any type of content creator, I always give them a shout out. It doesn't matter like if it's uh, if it's uh, like employee of Apex or whatever, whatnot. Because I think it's uh, it's a base principle of giving and taking. Because my um, my success, I would say my base success, the the reason why people know about me, uh, has to do a lot with receiving shoutouts from other people in the beginning. So uh, like I really have to fear to thank Shmi150, for example. He has made lots of videos with me and put me on a map as a creator. But also uh, lots of other names that I can well I know the importance of giving shout out and I know that the shout out does not cost anything to to a content creator of course some people make it a business uh, from their side um, by asking big brands of course for shout outs um, but when it concerns other people or other content creators I think this is what everyone needs to unite and yeah not, not be so much stuck up and uh, uh, and do it and, and that's the base reason why I do it but on the other hand, of course, it has uh, also nothing to do with business, but also with the with the fact that my videos are based on 
the life around the Nürburgring itself for the most part. And this includes everyone. It's uh, like if you would, for example, look into the very first uh, video of 2000, which year are we now? 2019, 2018, when we had our first taxi license, for example, I would go around the taxi car park and show every single company. I would introduce every single competitor of ours, talk to, talk to them, show the cars that they offer. Because at the end of the day, of course, even though I am related to Apex, I still want to show people that there are other companies and this is what the life at the Nürburgring is about. But once people, people started bitching about me doing stuff and then I stopped, of course, also like uh, highlighting their existence, so to say, from competitors-wise. But yeah, the, I think that's just like a very important thing to to include everyone um, if everyone's cool about it. Yeah. And last year, you went from the small screen, as it were, to to the big screen with um, was a, a series you did on Discovery. Yeah, this is um, this project we were filming last year, and this was uh, filmed for Discovery Channel, and to be more in particular for uh, Motor Trend. Um, but so like the latest update I had is that, uh, with their strategy, they decided to focus on UK market this year. And because the content we made was for German market, uh, the release of the project is now probably postponed to 2021, Ah. which is not a bad thing because it's a timeless content. We just talk about specific car models in general. It doesn't matter if we uh, release it now or in hundred years, it will be still relevant. Um, but, uh, yeah, I made a transition from not only doing YouTube stuff, but also external to, to other companies. Yeah. And how did you find going from being the guy who is, you know, writer, presenter, producer, director, cameraman, sound man, <laughs> to suddenly having other people and their involvement and their, you know, also their help and their support. What sort of mind shift was that for you as a creator? Well, if we talk about that particular project in particular, then I would say the biggest bottleneck for me was my knowledge of uh, my knowledge of German language because it was completely in German. And uh, of course, like it, it's not, by any means, it's not a bad, bad. But I think the important, like the success behind any type of content is that you can crack some witty jokes that are like intranslatable in, in any other language or you can like express yourself in in a very strong manner that you cannot do with basic language skills. And uh, I think that for me was the, the biggest challenge, but uh, for everything else, it, it was more of a learning curve to see how the big production companies do something, how they create something, something that I can uh, eventually transcend to my my personal videos or to other video projects that i'm involved in excellent well we'll we'll look forward to uh, to that as and when it's released and, and we'll give it a mention on the regular show as well just before we we wrap up there's a few quick fire questions i've got for you mm-hmm. we're going to go through these i will try and keep quiet and just let the answers speak for themselves favorite car movie of recent years first uh, ford versus ferrari definitely is uh, up top from the recent three years which YouTube channel should people be watching other than yours? <laughs> it's it's really hard to say because again there, there are so many good ones and the question is what do you uh, what do you prefer? Do you prefer uh, reality of things? Do you prefer some uh, infotainment? Uh, I do enjoy watching Donut Media for all types of content that they create, uh, so that's something I would recommend. Um, recently I came across a channel from UK called Officially Gassed that's actually something that uh, yeah, sometimes I tune in one of their videos and uh, for the rest it just like depends on what you prefer yourself. Car Trottle is of course also a very good one when they involve lots of humor and yeah there are plenty of good, good, good ones I can <laughs> yeah I would have to talk that's for another true. hour Given a huge budget what is the YouTube film you would love to make? A YouTube film? Huh. Um, yeah. Um, so if, if I would say like in, in general film, maybe. Um, I think a biopic on the life of Ferdinand Porsche would be great. 
But uh, there, there, there are lots of black pages in his life book, of course, which have helped him to become what he was that probably people would rather not see published. Um, maybe another like Nürburgring, like really Nürburgring focused documentary film would be also great. That's something definitely I would do. What about a car movie or a car TV series that you think would be worth a remake now? <laughs> Very difficult to, to answer because uh, unfortunately we see that any remake or reboot is usually uh, not as good as original and sometimes a lot worse and that makes you hate <laughs> that particular movie. Um, <laughs> True. So it's very hard to answer. Even like one of the recent examples, uh, Tom Holland said that uh, because it was like recently it was a video, a deep fake video where they made Tom Holland and Robert Downey Jr. Uh, appearance like uh, in the Back to the Future as if they were the stars of the Back to the Future. And uh, recently, uh, BBC asked Tom Holland, like, hey, uh, wh what do you think about this particular fly fragment? And Tom Holland admitted, like, hey, there have been actually talks of a reboot, us two starring in the Back to the Future, but we all agreed that it would be, like, impossible to cre recreate something this good um, as the original film, because it's actually pretty much perfect in that sense. Um, so I would be very careful with uh, naming any like big things, but like one of my favorite movies from childhood is The Great Race uh, from 1965 with uh, Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis. Um, oh wow! Yes, yeah, and I think uh, this is like a very much forgotten movie, but back at the time it was very big. I think it was uh, the most expensive comedy movie ever made back at the time, um, and it's very good. And I think the. Um, the Rat Race or something, the, the cartoon, uh, I forgot the, the name of the cartoon, is inspired on that movie. And that's something that would be very good to reboot, I would say, or make a remake. Oh, yeah, I'm trying to think of that cartoon now. I know the one you mean. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. With, with, with the dog and the evil scientist and... Uh, uh, with yeah, with Dick Dastardly and Muttley exactly, and exactly. Penelope yeah. Pitstop, but have, uh, and everyone's gonna be shouting at their podcast apps now. Um, <laughs> yes, but yes, that that would be that would be a very good shout. <laughs> Who should I talk to in the future episode of this podcast? Um, oh, the, the cartoon name is uh, Wacky Racers. I thought. Wacky races! Thank yes, you. Yes, you've just made my afternoon a lot less stressful. Yeah, and it's actually the first episode came from 1968. <laughs> I just uh, googled it, and uh, so it was wow. indeed three years after the, the actual movie was released, and that was uh, yeah yes. definitely based on on that. Uh, who should you talk to? Um, well, um, I think it would be interesting to talk, for example, either James from uh, Donut Media. Or hmm. maybe Alex from Car Trottle, because they like a very, uh, I would say, uh, ex well, I wouldn't say extravagant, but like very loud on YouTube. Whereas in real life, they would be like very, well, serious. I would say, and I think that that, that would show their more serious part of uh, more serious side of their face than people are used to seeing. Excellent. I will I will add those to the list. And finally, if people want to keep up with what you're up to on a day-to-day -day basis, what's the best way for them to follow you? <laughs> Sometimes I cannot even keep up with myself. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, But yeah, of course, it would be my YouTube channel or my Instagram channels or even my Facebook one uh, where I post, try to post daily on. And um, yeah, people can see what, what I'm doing right now and uh, whether I'm working on... Uh, on the multi-million euro hypercar or I'm building an old Mark IV Golf DDI. I'm so looking forward to seeing that when you get all the modification put on and it's rattling and buzzing and doing laps and just being awesome. So <laughs> thank you. looking forward to that. Thank you very much, Misha. This has been a, been really, really interesting. Yeah, thank you very much. And, uh, I hope to see you at the Nürburgring. And we'll see you on the next episode, everyone. 